This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We were just talking about the band Coldplay and how they're going to go on hiatus from touring because they're trying to figure out a better way to do it that is more environmentally friendly. They really want to cut back on their use of single-use plastics. There's also a really interesting Canadian public survey out today that says the vast majority of Canadians support a ban on the use of single-use plastic. So that's what we're asking you is our hot question of the day today. All this discussion about it, I'm sure you've done something at home in the last six months to a year where you have questioned your use of some kind of single-use plastic and probably changed your habit in some way, shape, or form, whether it's bags, straws, you know, whatever it is, I'm sure you do something differently. So check out our hot question of the day. You'll find it at CKNW or at SimiSarah980. You can also email me, Simi at CKNW.com. Tell me what it is that you have done at your house to cut back on use of single-use plastics. Uh, And you can also, of course, call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Would you support a federal ban on single-use plastics? Yes, save the planet. No, they're kind of convenient. Go ahead and cast your vote and let us know how you feel about that. You know, when it comes to addictions and big money, nothing ever changes without a fight. Think about what happened with, you know, big tobacco back in the 1980s and 1990s. Well, are we seeing something similar when it comes to vaping? Some doctors think so. Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada is out with some new research, and they say it shows that the prices for what's known as starter vaping products are actually coming down. And that's got them worried that this could make those products more accessible to young people and are an attempt to maybe counteract some of those new regulations that have been announced by the BC government. Let's talk more about this now with Cynthia Callard, who's the Executive Director of Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada. Cynthia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Tell me, what is it that you took a look at here? Well, we uh, do a periodic survey of prices uh, for cigarettes and, the, and other products. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were wandering uh, around Montreal, taking pictures and noting that we saw that the prices for vaping products were much, much lower than they had been at the beginning of the year. It's important to remember that these products have only been in convenience stores for a little over a year. They were legalized last May in 2018, and many of them were only introduced, say, you know, in January this year and so forth. So, so we're able to kind of see a very sudden, sudden change in, in what was happening with the prices. Some of them, for example, that were introduced at $40 in January, we're now selling for 10 Whoa. And even... <laughs> and that's for a, a starter kit that includes a vaping device and a charger and some pods to start with. And we're particularly concerned about making that first experimentation too affordable for young people. And uh, we've learned this from from our you know decades of experience with tobacco products, is that when the prices are low, more people right. are likely to try. When they try, they're more likely to become addicted. And when they're addicted, they're less likely to try to quit as long as there's low prices. So we're concerned with this with respect to vaping products as well. And do you think that is an effort on the part of these companies to to do just that, to get more people hooked? I think that that's, um, that is definitely part of their plan. And I think there's something else underway, which is that 
the um, before the product was legal, we had a lot of vape shops that kind of sold much more expensive devices, and they sold um, a different kind of product. But I think there's a competition going on between the vape stores and the convenience stores. So I think they're, they're, they have two interests. One, they want to expand their long-term consumer base, get people addicted young, and keep them for a lifetime. Right. And that they also want to get rid of the competition. That's really changed, though, hasn't it, Cynthia? Because, you know, when vaping first started, it was seen as a a way to help people quit cigarette smoking. And now it's turned into something very different. It's amazing how quickly it has turned around. I think a year ago, what was driving government decisions were that the potential of these products to, you know, to make things um to give smokers another alternative that was maybe less health, uh, harmful was very attractive. And in, over the last year, what we've seen is that the companies are driven not to replace smokers with vapors, but to add vapors to their clientele base. And we've had an opportunity to you know, look at how they're explaining this to their investors, and they're quite open at saying that um, for them, vaping is additive. It adds to their consumer base. It increases the number of people that they can sell products to. It increases the number of times that people can use a product because sometimes you can vape in an environment where you can't smoke, so it makes it easier to, to maintain an right. addiction. And it adds to their long-term profits. So I, I think this is... Um, it's now time for governments to take a, a, a rethink of what's happening. British Columbia was one of the first governments to kind of refresh its policies um, just recently, and we're hoping that the same thing will happen across the country. But are there concerns then, do you think, with these companies that regulations are coming? Well, I think they're aware that they are, and they're fighting back hard. Uh, they're planning um, um, advertising campaigns to discourage uh, regulations. They claim that the regulations the government are going to put in place are, they'll say they're ineffective and that they're kind of almost unethical because if you ban a flavor that children like, then it might prevent a smoker from trying a less harmful product. There's a lot of very, very sophisticated public relations initiatives underway. And we haven't really been in this kind of a uh, ground war, really, with tobacco companies for a decade or so since they, we had smoking bans, I guess, since they had that they were right. developing, you know, that many front groups that are arguing for them and to um, try and really put pressure on government to leave the market open for them. So, Cynthia, what does the um, Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada then think about what BC is trying to do? Uh, I, we're very pleased with uh, what we heard from British Columbia last year. They um, are the first province to look at a tax. We think their tax will be have some effect, but it's not as effective. It's not going to address the underlying price war element of it. Mm-hmm. As long as companies can sell a product below the cost of production, as long as they can use it like a lost leader to get a long-term addict, you know, that's like almost the old adage of, of a drug dealer is the first one's for free. Um, then, then I think we're going to have a, a problem. We need a different kind of price control as well. And we're hoping to, you know, encourage British Columbia and other governments to adopt that. But as for the other measures that were announced, they're, they're, they're sensible, they're prudent, and we think they'll be very effective. Right, because one thing BC is doing that they've specified that adults can still use flavored vaping products, uh, not accessible to children, but in adult vaping stores. Do you think that's the way to go? Because then it is more of a cessation tool. 
Well, at this time, um, yeah, at this time, yes, that would that ref- reflect our position. We don't want to ban all flavors. What we want to do is change it so that they can't have any flavor on the market. The approach taken in BC of saying, "Well, we'll restrict the locations," is a sensible approach. But I note that there was a you know a report in today's um, um, Canadian Medical Association journal that talked about um, an, the near death of someone who was using a legal vaping product with a flavoring, and it was the flavorant that triggered his lungs to become extremely dysfunctional. So I think that it's possible that we could learn that flavorings are dangerous. What's really ha- One of the things that's happened over the last year is we, um, people said, well, we don't know what the long-term health risks of these products are, and somehow that got translated into policy as being they're probably not that bad. And as there's more experience with the products and there's more reports and more evidence comes up, I think we're going to have to be in a constant state of evaluation to see what the rule should be. But for the moment, uh, we think the regulations that were proposed in British Columbia are, as I say, prudent and sound and will be effective. Do we underestimate, though, the ability of like kind of these big companies to adapt? And I mean, they're not just going to roll over and give up their customers. Oh, thank you for that question. I think that's exactly the point. The, the basic economics are wrong. It, you know, it, 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 tobacco companies right now have a responsibility to maximize their revenue and profits for their shareholders. Well, they don't do that by helping smokers switch from one product that's very profitable to them to another product that they can barely make money on. They only do that if they stop smokers from quitting or if they get new users. So for them, their incentives are completely at odds with the public health goals. And I think this is a more fundamental structural problem we have in this market for recreational drugs that we're going to have to come to grips with. Um, we, We have, in some measure, with um, uh, when cannabis was legalized the same year as vaping, and the cannabis problem has not surfaced with youth in the same way that the vaping problem has. And I think that's in part because there were very strict rules on how cannabis wholesalers and retailers could you know, uh, be right. manipulated by their suppliers. So, so, so I think there are lessons. There's lots we have left to learn and to, to improve on, yes. All right, Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate this. Thank you. That's Cynthia Callard, Executive Director of Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada. They continually monitor the price of vaping products, and they've just come out with a study, and they say they're worried because they see the prices for some starter vaping products coming down. And you heard Cynthia's example there, uh, a starter pack. Uh, that was $40 at the beginning of this year is now down in in many locations to about $10. And they think that is a way for these companies to try to get early, you know, users in, get them to try it out and then hook them. And then they are customers and then they're addicted at that point. There's a lot of concern this morning about a story that we have been just developing. We've heard about it in the last hour and a bit. And it goes all the way back to 2004 and a name that you may remember. It's a man named Brian Abrosimo. Back in 2004, you may remember an 11-year-old girl from Langley was kidnapped, assaulted, and fortunately finally found in Surrey. Now, the person who was charged with that and served time for that offense is now out on parole and living in Vancouver. And that is why Vancouver Police Department took that step about an hour ago of instituting this public warning. Uh, And again, it is a man named 57-year-old Brian Abrosimo. Now, his release comes with supervision terms, a long list of conditions for that. 
But the Vancouver Police Department, just in the last couple of minutes, has been having a press conference on this, and Sergeant Aaron Road has been sharing some more details. So have a listen. The Vancouver Police Department believes compelling circumstances exist to warn the public about a high-risk sexual offender, Brian Abrosimo, who is now living in Vancouver. Brian Abrosimo is a 57-year-old white man who is 5'7", 240 pounds with hazel eyes. He has a shaved gray hair. It looks bald, but he does have gray hair, as well as a gray mustache and goatee. Abrosimo poses a risk of significant harm to adolescent and adult women, including strangers and acquaintances. Abrosimo will be living at a halfway house in the city of Vancouver, but will have the ability to go anywhere within the city which abide by his conditions of release. Abrosimo is a two-time federal offender serving a 14-year and four-month sentence for sexual assault, kidnapping, unlawful confinement, assault with a weapon, sexual assault with a weapon, and forcible confinement. His sentence started in 2006, and a 10-year long-term supervision order will start when his custodial sentence ends in October of 2020. He will be bound by the terms of his statutory release, which include the following conditions. He is not to consume or purchase alcohol. He's not to consume, purchase, or possess drugs other than prescribed medication and over-the-counter drugs taken as recommended by a manufacturer. He's not to associate with any person known to be involved in criminal activity or substance misuse. He has to immediately report all intimate sexual and non-sexual relationships and friendships with females to his parole supervisor. He's not to be in the present of presence of any female, children under the age of 18, unless accompanied by a responsible adult familiar with his criminal history and who has previously been approved in writing by his parole supervisor. He's not to be in or near or around places where children under the age of 18 are likely to congregate, such as elementary and secondary schools, parks, swimming pools, and recreational centers, unless accompanied by an adult previously approved by his parole supervisor. He is not to have any direct or indirect contact with the victims or members of the victims' families. He also has a geographic restriction where he's not allowed to be in Abbotsford, Langley, or on Vancouver Island. Anyone sees or knows of a Brissimo violating any of these conditions is asked to call 911 immediately. The Vancouver Police Department does not want to be alarmist or strike fear into the community. We just feel with his violent criminal past, people living in Vancouver need to know that he will be residing in and around them. Abrissimo will be monitored by a parole supervisor, and he's also being monitored by an electronic bracelet, which does monitor his activity. That is Sergeant Aaron Road from the Vancouver Police Department. I can count on one hand how many times in the last 
five years, seven years that, that they have done something like this. It is quite unprecedented for them to do it. So if they do it, that is why we kind of pay very close attention to it. They're talking about a man named 57-year-old Brian Abrissimo. Now, if, you want to, if you're if you wondering, like, what does he look like? What is the deal with this? Go to our website, cknw.com. Under latest news there, you will see some pictures. You'll have some history, some background. But essentially a very strict warning there uh, for the public from the Vancouver Police Department. That should also give you some... Uh, comfort because it does tell you how seriously the police takes us. There's a long list of conditions there and you can bet that they are going to be monitoring him very closely to see if any of those conditions are violated. So of course, if there are any updates to that story, we will have them for you. If you'd like to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Coming up a little bit later on the show, we're going to be talking about single-use plastics because of this new survey that's out right across Canada. There is a large number of people who say they support the idea of a ban, a federal ban on single-use plastics. So we were asking you for our hot question today. Are you one of those people? Do you support this as well? Our numbers are coming in right now very close to what the federal poll numbers were showing. Uh, We've got 70% of people who say, yes, they would save the planet. Uh, We've got 30% of people who say, no, they wouldn't support this because single-use plastics can be so convenient. Where do you come down on this? You can check it out. It's online at CKNW or at Simisara980. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. Well, today on Science with Simi, we're talking about addictions. Now, addictions are very complicated. They're different for every person. But what has some similarity sometimes is how they uh, get started, actually. Uh, and just, I just want to, before I get to the Science with Simi situation, uh, I just... Um, I want to mention that Premier John Horgan is actually speaking in Victoria right now, uh, potentially about to talk about the transit strike situation. So we'll be keeping a very close eye on that. So there may be an update on that coming up in a few minutes, but I just saw him walk out and start talking there. So I thought we're going to keep a close eye on that and we'll let you know what happens there. But in the meantime, when it comes to talking about addictions, we wanted to point out this really interesting new study for you. Uh, A lot of people who become addicted to things like opioids start because it's about pain management, right? How many times have we heard that? May have started with them dealing with some kind of physical ailment, something physically painful, and then it kind of goes downhill from there. But what if there was another way of managing that pain? Could we maybe prevent people from becoming addicted to the opioids themselves or maybe even help them get off of those? This is an idea that's actually being developed thanks to some research that's being done at the BC Centre on Substance Use. One of their ongoing studies looked at the ways in which addicts manage their pain. And the results were surprising because they found a trend. And to learn more about that, we were joined earlier today by Stephanie Lake, who's a PhD student in the School of Population and Public Health at UBC and a research associate at the BC Centre on Substance Use. And here's what she told us. Well, Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Tell me about your research, first of all. What did you look at? So what we did in the study is we we have, uh, we have follow people who are using illicit drugs in the downtown east side. They come in for interviews every uh, six months, and so we uh, gather information, health information, substance use information um, from them. And then what we do is we analyze this data to try and understand patterns of health in the community. And so what we did with this study is we looked at people who reported living with chronic pain, Um, And we looked at how their use of cannabis related to their use of uh, illicit opioids. Um, 
And what we found was that people who uh, reported using cannabis approximately every day in the previous six months um, were about 50% less likely to be using illicit opioids every day in the previous six months. I guess the reason why I find this so interesting is because so much of what we heard when it comes to this opioid overdose crisis is the way in which people get addicted and it usually starts with pain management of some kind. Yeah, so that is one of the trajectories that's definitely come about in recent years. Um, so uh, people are are in pain, they're prescribed opioids, and then they might be- become dependent on opioids. And then something that we also see in the community that we study, so this is a very highly marginalized and vulnerable community in the downtown east side. Some of them have been using opioids for years. And so for some of these folks, it may have not started with a, a pharmaceutical prescription, yet they still experience a lot of uh, chronic pain and And so opioids, whether or not it's from a prescription or a a street uh, like heroin, uh, those opioids are often used in self-management of pain. And so we do see kind of both narratives play out in the population that we study. So then if someone in your study was a more regular cannabis user, like a daily user, was that more effective for their pain management in them using fewer opioids. So yeah, what we what we found was that statistically, um, we did find a trend there where uh, using cannabis every day was associated with uh, using opioids less frequently. We also looked at people who were using cannabis, but not as frequently. So they were kind of occasional cannabis users. Mm-hmm. And we didn't find the same effect play out in this uh, group of people who were using cannabis not every day. So there might be something therapeutic, kind of a more therapeutic component to using it every day. Okay, so if you got a trend, that's pretty good because isn't that what you guys are trying to do in yeah. your line of work like you're looking for a statistical trend exactly so that was the main finding was the 50 percent lower likelihood of uh, using illicit opioids every day and then we kind of did this secondary analysis where we compared people who were using every day versus people who were using occasionally and we asked these folks why they were using cannabis and they could check off a number of reasons and so um we did see a lot of people who were using uh, to get high, which is understandable, of course. Um, but we also saw statistically it was more likely that the people who were using every day were using for a number of therapeutic reasons like pain relief and right. like sleep uh, management and, and uh, preventing nausea. So these are all... Um, possible health reasons uh, that might be kind of treatable with opioids, but they may be treating them with cannabis instead. This is so interesting then, because does that change now with what we know about cannabis, uh, our approach to this situation? Like, is this more medical than we realized? I think what it what it does, it, it, re- it really brings to light um, that there is a, a big kind of a spectrum of of reasons for using cannabis. And it's not strictly uh, recreational or non-medical. It's probably not strictly therapeutic. There's a lot of overlap in between. And I think cannabis for uh, for these folks might serve a lot of different purposes. But one of these purposes is largely therapeutic. And I think that needs to become a focus of some of this research, um, really figuring out why people are using it, what types of cannabis they might be using, and and how this relates to their states of health. And so I think there's still a lot to do in this right. in this area. Yeah, uh, that's what I was wondering too. Is that now? Do you want to know? Like, well, how much were they using? What kind were they using? What was the THC level? Like, there's still so many questions. Exactly. So those are some really important questions that we're hoping to be able to dive into, especially now that we are in the era of legalization. We can start actually uncovering some of this information. Yeah. Um, whereas before, you know, buying cannabis, we weren't always 
always sure what was in the cannabis we were buying. Now that it's legal, at least if we're buying a legal product, we do have access to that information. Now in this population of people who are very low income and might not have actually good access to the more expensive legal cannabis, that might not be as possible. And so that's one barrier that we might be facing. And it brings up uh, also kind of uh, up an important issue that's facing this community is is actually equi- equitable access to right. safe, safer and regulated cannabis. What does this also tell us, though, about the issue of addiction and the different ways in which people will try to manage that? It's not just about mm-hmm. getting high. Mm-hmm. It's also about managing a whole host of other health issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it does introduce some questions around that. Um, something that we will be very interested in looking at in the future, uh, Some a study that we'll be trying to plan out of the BC Centre on Substance Use is looking at um, the use of cannabis as kind of an adjunct therapy to mm-hmm. um, evidence-based opioid use disorder treatments like methadone maintenance. So if people are using cannabis at the same time, is that helping them better manage some of their symptoms uh, for opioid use disorder? Right. This is just a whole new area of research, isn't it? Yes, it's it's definitely new, very exciting, um, lots to do still. And I think what this study does, it really sets the stage for future work in this area. So we haven't been able to prove anything with it. It's very observational data, but it definitely shows us a, a promising signal that this is probably something that we should continue to, to monitor. What do you think it suggests to you? Does it suggest that under the right conditions for a lot of people, cannabis use could keep them off of harsher drugs? I think that that might be one uh, implication of this research. I'm I'm cautious to make any broad statements with the research that we did do. I will say that um, based on the numbers, that is kind of where the research is pointing. But I think it will be important to um, to to study this more um, formally. So formally designing uh, kind of a randomized clinical trial of cannabinoid-based therapies for the management of pain and for the management of opioid use disorder among people who are uh, in pain and people who uh, have opioid use disorder, including many of the the types of uh, individuals that we followed in in this study. I'm also impressed with those individuals that you followed because they're clearly quite open with you about what their lifestyle, what they're using, what they're doing, Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't be able to help unless they were that open with you. Yeah, I mean, we have... um, So these two studies that um, we pulled for for this research, they've been ongoing um, studies uh, in the downtown east side since... uh, One of them has been ongoing since 1996 and the other one since... 2005. So um, we really have a a good relationship with um, the folks who are in the study. We have um, people who are trained interviewers who these folks see on a regular basis who have developed good relationships. And so I think this really does help to increase the capacity for us to do this research and really uh, make change in the community. Oh, so fascinating. Stephanie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Stephanie Lake, PhD student in the School of Population and Public Health at UBC and a research associate at the BC. Center on Substance Use. Really interesting, right? The idea that if people who are opioid addicts take cannabis every day for their pain management, they are less likely to use those opioids for that if they can just develop kind of a pain management plan. Uh, that very hopeful stuff and that they're going to continue to look into that. Can I ask you what you're going to do next week when the bus is on strike? I don't know. I'm going to try to make it to school. Yeah. Do you know some, how? In some way. I don't know. I came out from White Rock. So, I mean, um, if I paid for a ride share, it would probably be really expensive. So, I don't think it's going to... Don't think it's going to work out for me next week. I'm lucky in that like some of my friends live on campus and they can offer me spots. But I parked next to the pharmacy building, already full. 
So, like, people are going to have to get here like an hour earlier than before their classes to find parking. I don't know what those students are going to do. Those are just some of the students up at UBC already wondering and thinking, and of course they are. They have to plan ahead about what they're going to do next week with the full bus and sea bus system shut down Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. This is day 21 of the transit strike, and we're getting an indication of just how deep it's going to be felt next week. And as I mentioned earlier, it looks like Premier John Horgan has been talking about this and a number of other issues in immediate availability. With The first question that he got, though, had to do with this transit strike situation. He is calling on both sides in the transit dispute to get back to the bargaining table this weekend. I'm confident that the best way to go forward is at the bargaining table. And until such time as the parties have an understanding of how close they can get, mediation uh, may not be the, the right answer. I'm, I want the parties back at the table. Uh, I understand the importance of transit to the traveling public. The, the employer does, uh, the workers do. I think everybody wants a resolution and they've got the opportunity over the weekend to get that done. And uh, in the house today, Andrew Wilkinson, I heard him heckling at one point saying like, oh, what, you guys don't want to do anything bad to your buddies. Yeah. Um, he, he just said to me in the hallway, suggested maybe this government is, is very close to the union movement. And you're taking orders from the unions. How, do, how would you respond to that? Uh, well, it's difficult to respond uh, to questions from the leader of the opposition. I, again, I, I take no lessons from BC Liberals who whose finest hour when it comes to labor relations was ripping up collective agreements uh, and to uh, oversee a four-month strike uh, in the transit in the Lower Mainland. So I appreciate Mr. Wilkinson and the, the challenge of being a leader of the opposition. It's not easy work, but uh, he's got nothing to offer on this question, quite frankly. And I'm hopeful that the parties, the people that really matter in this instance, the employer and the, the drivers and the union are going to get this done. And that's my fervent hope. And I'm going to encourage them uh, throughout the weekend to get it done. Yes, we would all like to see them get it done this weekend, but the problem is, will they actually do that? Because here's the thing. Coast Mountain Bus Company just sent out a statement about half an hour ago, and they are once again calling on Unifor to agree to join them in mediation. But they said they're waiting to hear back from the union on that. Now, this job action does not affect SkyTrain, Canada Line, West Coast Express, or any kind of contracted shuttle services. It also will not affect West Vancouver Blue Bus System. That that is a different company. But as you can imagine, it does mean that SkyTrain and all these other systems are going to be very, very busy. Metro Vancouver Transit Police say they are going to be increasing staff to deal with any crowding that they see there. We've also been trying to help out by pointing out any other ways of dealing with the situation, what the plans are going to be at different institutions. Right now, we're going to check in with Sean Chaudhry, who's one of the people that is running a Facebook group for people who are students up at SFU in order to help out with carpooling. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Hi there. What kind of response have you been getting on Facebook? Well, initially, we had created this group about on uh, October 28th, I believe, when uh, CNBC sent out their 72-hour notice. We didn't know what the strike would look like. It was quite active at that moment. And then it has had really died down until yesterday when they announced that it's going to be a full shutdown of the of the of the whole system, yeah. system from Wednesday to Friday. And a lot of people have been asking for rides and more drivers have been offering rides. And that's about it. Okay, so you are getting a lot of activity. So people are yes. kind of connecting on that group? Yes, a lot of people are. I have seen today and yesterday a lot more. It's a lot more active. More people are connecting. 
Yeah. Has there been any help from Simon Fraser on this either, Sean? Because, I mean, obviously the campus is a little difficult to get to. Yeah. Um, Simon Fraser has uh, made has closed off a road uh, section for parking, and that's a, that's about their extent of the help for this group. And uh, they've they've put, sent out emails saying that nothing will be canceled, classes will stay the same, and right. that exams will continue. So, okay, are you worried though for you, for how you're going to get up there? Um, me personally, I am worried about, uh, A, there's going to be a lot, I, I know there's going to be a lot more traffic going up there and B, finding parking, even though they've created additional spots for us to park, about 25,000 students take the bus and that, that a lot of that traffic is going to be converted into cars. So that is going to be a stress. All right. So you are, exams yeah. And classes, yeah. you are worried about that. Yeah. All right, Sean, listen, good luck with the Facebook group. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That is Sean Chowdhury. He's one of the people running a Facebook group for Simon Fraser University students interested in carpooling to try to get up to campus there. bit challenging. You know the campus is up at the main one anyways, up at top of Burnaby Mountain. Uh, so bus is pretty essential for a lot of people to get up there. Uh, we'll hear more about how they're planning to deal with it. Right now, though, let's also check in with Selena McLaughlin, who's the Director of Marketing and Communications for Moto, which is another car share company that operates here in Metro Vancouver. Selena, thanks for being here. Glad to be there. Are you seeing any kind of uptick in people signing up because of this transit strike? No, um, we haven't seen any uptick um, due to the strike. Uh, we, w- we wouldn't actually expect to see so because our service, unlike some of the other car shares uh, in Vancouver, is designed to be round trip. So you're picking up the car and returning it to the same location. Right. Because of that, it's not really designed to be a commuter solution. Right, I see. So you're not that concerned then, I guess, about people using this more, perhaps, or getting more usage out of your vehicles leading up to the strike? I mean, we're we're not so worried because we don't expect to see a lot of people using the service to support commuting, um, given that we expect most of the service disruption um, to be affecting commuters. What we what we may see is more usage of our of our vehicles again being round trip for non commuter trips so you know shopping and and uh, you know getting out of town. In right. that case, our members are well served with the vehicles that we do have. Um, it is possible that somebody may want to book a moto and pack in you know five or six people into a minivan, take it to work and share the cost. So it's um, it's possible we'll see that. Um, we haven't yet. All right. So you're just keeping an eye on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Selena, thank you. You're welcome. That is Selena McLaughlin, Director of Marketing and Communications for Moto. We're checking in now with Matthew Ramsey, who's the Director of University Affairs at UBC's Media Relations Department. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Simi. What are you communicating to students at this point about next week? What we're doing is we're making sure our community is kept up to date on the most recent uh, information about the transit uh, dispute through ubc.ca um, and through media such as yourself. So appreciate the opportunity to be on today. Um, what we're telling our students is that uh, classes will remain in session. The university will stay open and they really need to think about services like carpooling, cycling um, and other other modes of transport to, to get to campus at this point. Are you concerned at all, though, about parking? Because I know that, you know, parking is limited up at UBC. A lot more people may drive. 
Yeah, obviously that is a concern, I think, not just for UBC, but for uh, organizations and institutions across the Metro Vancouver area. We have a number of uh, covered parking lots, but we don't have the big surface lots that some folks might remember from years past yeah. at UBC. So we do have a uh, parking system that allows people to buy permits before they get to the university. We're encouraging folks to use that system, buy their permits early, and leave early if they're driving to get to campus to ensure they have a spot. That being said, we can't guarantee there will be enough room for everyone. So we've also set up a system, and there's a map on ubc.ca for folks who are interested, uh, pick up and drop off points um, where folks can drive onto campus, drop off their, their students, fac- faculty or staff, and then, uh, and then leave. Yeah, right. Good point, though. This is also about faculty and staff, isn't it? It's not just about students. Yeah, well, UBC has about 80,000 people on campus every day, uh, including students, faculty and staff, hospital employees and employees of dozens of other businesses on and around campus. And what we see is that about 80,000 folks coming up here and leaving here take transit. So it's a, it's a big concern for everybody in this community. So those pick up and drop off points, are they on campus? Are they near campus? They're on campus. Right. Okay. So what have you been hearing from concerned students about this? Yes, yes, we have. We have, um, it's safe to say, a a large number of students who are concerned about this. And we're really encouraging them at this point to check with their instructors if they have questions about what happens if they're late for class or miss class. Check with academic advisors on on the options available to them. Uh, And we're also asking staff to talk to supervisors about telecommuting or other options that are available to them. I think if you go to ubc.ca, you'll find a really detailed FAQ that we're updating on a daily basis where a lot of those questions are answered. Right. Matthew, does UBC even have room for 10,000 more cars on a daily basis? No. That's going to be tough next week, isn't it? It's going to be a challenge, but uh, we're hopeful that um, folks will pre-prepare and uh, take the steps they need to to find alternative modes uh, of getting here. Um, Obviously, we don't have parking infrastructure that will fit everybody. I do know that discussions are underway to try and figure out if we can find additional room, and we'll be posting those uh, those details to ubc.ca as soon as we have them. Okay, so then also we should point out here once again, ubc.ca, what kind of information can people find there? Is there ways to connect with people for carpooling and things as well? Yeah, we have posted some information about carpooling as well as links to a couple of uh, local carpool uh, service providers for folks there. People will find the map of pick-up and drop-off points there. Students will find information about what to do if they're concerned about potentially being late or missing classes. Faculty will find links to ways that they can offer remote learning for their students. Staff can find information about what they should do if they're concerned. I mean, it's worth pointing out here, Simi, that we have... 12,000 students who actually live on campus, Um, and those folks require services to be in operation 24-7. We also have a number of research uh, projects that require 24-7 staffing, as well as the operations of the university itself. We can't just close down. Um, Canceling classes, I'm sure you're going to ask about that. That's not really an option either. The academic calendar is really complex. Some of the programs that we offer here, for example, if you miss four days of classes, you can lose professional accreditation. So we're really trying to make sure that we can keep the normal operations running 
understanding, of course, that it's going to be a big challenge for people uh, as they try and figure out a way of getting here. Now, Matthew, my last question here is a little bit self-serving, okay? Go ahead. I know that next week is also convocation ceremonies up at UBC because my daughter's in one on on the Thursday, but where the heck are all these parents and guests supposed to park? You've got three or four days of convocation ceremonies going on next week. Yes, we do. And as, as normal, we do set aside the Rose Garden Parkade for convocation uh, visitors. Staff and faculty are not permitted to p- park in that parkade uh, during those events, and that's our plan for next week. So hopefully. hopefully everything goes smoothly. Hopefully, but I'll be up there, so I will guess I'll see firsthand. Uh, Matthew, thank you for that. A pleasure. Thanks. Appreciate that. That's Matthew Ramsey, Director of University Affairs at UBC's Media Relations Department, ubc.ca. If you need help finding carpooling or suggestions on what to do, 80,000 people bus it up to UBC every day. That's a huge number that will not have that option available to them Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week. And now we also figured a lot of people would be thinking about car sharing, right? They'd be like, oh, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to sign up for car to go. I'm going to sign up for Evo, whatever the case may be. There's not enough cars for all the people who are going to do that either. We thought we would check in right now with Dave Worf, who is Evo's Senior Manager of Customer Operations. Dave, thanks for being here. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me on. Has your company seen an increase in people signing up? We did uh, when the uh, transit situation was first announced uh, at the uh, end of October. We did see a slight lift um, in people inquiring about and signing up for memberships. And we started to see that level off, but we do anticipate that um, as the uh, transit situation um, escalated uh, as of yesterday, we will start to see more people signing up. Okay, so what has Evo done to prepare for that? Well, we've definitely been watching closely, and we've uh, got a a large team working on this right now. So one of the things that we want to make sure is that vehicles are in places where people can find them. So we've beefed up our relocation plans and have been uh, sending extra staff as well to be ready uh, for next Wednesday, Thursday, and and Friday to make sure that vehicles aren't all ending up in one place, that they're uh, in strategic places around uh, SkyTrain stations so that people can find them and get around. Right. Okay. So you are making that effort to make sure there will be cars around SkyTrain stations. Definitely. Okay. What else can people count on Evo for then next week? Well, one of the things to remember is Evo offers free metered parking in the city of Vancouver. And what that does is give um, quite a bit of options for people when they're uh, looking to find a vehicle or, or end a trip close to transit. So that's really important uh, thing to know. Uh, you know, the other thing that we're looking at is we're possible um, extra home zones. So we're exploring ideas about areas that we don't serve right now that may need that help. Okay, so you are prepared in the next week, though, for more people to sign up for your service. We are, definitely. All right, Dave, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That is Dave Worf, Evo's Senior Manager of Customer Operations. Of course, they are the car-sharing company. And you can bet a lot of people are going to think, well, I'll just sign up for this. But many other people may have that idea as well. Now, this is all in anticipation of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday next week, where the complete bus and C-bus shutdown are going to happen. But there still will need to be a lot of people who carpool and find other methods of transportation. So if you're coming up with something creative or if you're finding different ways to deal with this, listen, let me know so we can put the word out there, okay? Send me at cknw.com. QP7000 members working for SkyTrain have voted overwhelmingly in favor of job action, that 96.8% strike vote. Uh, We just received that a few moments ago. Let's find out more about it now and in particular what it means. Joining us, Tony Rabella, who is the QP7000 president. Tony, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. What are the next steps here? 
So our next steps, uh, we do have mediation uh, scheduled uh, starting next week, uh, but we, we have sent out extra dates to the employer for tomorrow and over the weekend. Uh, we're calling on them to return to the table immediately to ensure there's no disruption of service. So you're asking uh, for more mediation? Or sorry, well, more we, bargaining? We want to bargain. We want to try and get closer before we get to mediation. I think uh, we, we have that opportunity to do so. Uh, our members of our bargaining committee have put their lives on hold over this weekend to see if we can get that with the employer. So now it's up to the employer to come back and let us know if they want to do that as well. So, Tony, that sounds like that there is some room there that you're not completely out of it yet here. No, we don't, we don't think we're completely out of it. But our members have told us very, very clearly on if we don't get a deal between now and the end of mediation, um, what they're willing to do to get a, to get a deal and get a fair deal. And so we want to make sure the employer understands that. What was turnout like for this vote? Uh, it was just under 90% of our membership turned out for this vote. And is that is, uh, about, the highest we've ever had it? That is the highest you've ever had it for the strike yeah. vote. Yes. What have been the big issues here? What are the sticking points? Our sticking points are still our forced overtime language, uh, our fair wage compensation package, our um, sick plan, and our staffing level, our inadequate levels of staffing. Do you feel there is movement? Um, right now, there's been no movement. Um, the employer continues to say that they're willing to talk in mediation. Uh, we're willing to talk beforehand to try and get closer uh, to make mediation uh, a quicker process. Uh, but we, at this point, we haven't had any um, positive feedback from them. Okay, so there are eight days, though, set aside for mediation. Is that right? Yeah, we have eight days, yeah. Okay, and when does that take place? It starts November 28th. Uh, We have November 28th and 29th, and we have some dates in December that go into mid-December. Okay, so for now, then, it doesn't sound like there's going to be strike action or job action. Right now, I want to ensure the public we are not doing any type of job action whatsoever. We are committed to get a deal done at the table. But our members have told us very clearly that if that doesn't happen, then we'll we'll see what our next steps will be after mediation. Now, Tony, has yeah. the union ever been in this position before when it comes to the BC Rapid Transit Company? Has there ever been a strike vote before? And if so, what happened? Uh, we've, we've held strike votes in the past, and uh, we've been able to get a deal done at mediation. Um, this process, it, it's been a lot longer than our past, our recent processes through bargaining. Uh, so we just want to make sure that the employer understands how serious our membership is in getting a deal. And how many employees are we talking about here? Uh, just around 900. Okay, and so this is for all SkyTrain lines? All SkyTrain, uh, Expo and Millennium lines only. Okay, so then just to yeah. reiterate here, Tony, for people who are listening, there is no imminent job action coming? No, not right now. It's business as usual. I want to let the public know and all our passengers know that we are committed to getting a deal at the table without having any type of job action. But that now is on the employer. The employer needs to understand that we're serious about getting a deal. They need to come to us with serious with a serious package. And so that's where we're at right now. All right, Tony, thank you for your time. No problem. Thank you.
That is Tony Rabello, who's the QP7000 president, responding to the results they released just moments ago. And that is that they had the highest turnout ever for a strike vote. And members voted 96.8% in favor of job action. So that's the bad news. The good news, though, as you heard Tony Rabello say, is that any job action is a ways away if at all. There is mediation scheduled in this dispute. They said eight days are on the calendar for them to mediate. And QP7000 also saying, as you heard Tony Rebello say there, they are offering the employer more dates to bargain prior to mediation starting. They are hoping that the employer, the BC Rapid Transit Company, will sit down with them and bargain through this upcoming weekend. So the BC Coroner's Service has something called a a death panel review, and they look into unexplained deaths. They have been looking into sudden infant sleep deaths, and they have found that babies continue to die under many of the same circumstances as the last time they looked at this, about five years ago. The panel has also determined that these deaths are disproportionately among young families with risk factors, such as exposure to tobacco or other vulnerabilities and that sleep position combined with health issues have actually increased mortality risk among some infants. Now, this used to be known as sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, but there's a lot of new things about this that we are learning and what a big impact it's still having in this province. We want to talk more about this. So joining us now is Michael Elson, who's the chair for the Child Death Review Unit for the BC Coroner's Service. Michael, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for your interest in the topic. Well, we've, we used to call this sudden infant death syndrome, right? Um, yeah, once upon a time, yes. And so what sudden infant death syndrome really was saying is we can't explain how these deaths happened. And about uh, in 2013 or so, the chief coroners and chief medical examiners in, in the country re-looked at this and um, in, in looking at providing, I think, more thorough investigations, um, trying to actually uh, tease out what we actually did know and what we didn't. And so these, these deaths are now, if we don't know the cause of the death, um, after a, um, a, an autopsy, an investigation, they would be seen as undetermined deaths. And a number of these deaths that would have been um, previously um, categorized in with SIDS actually turn out to be things like um, asphyxial deaths where somebody, uh, an infant may have been um, wedged um, in a sleep surface, a parent may have um, overlaid. Uh, and so really what, what the investigative process has tried to do is, is try to understand um, better um, how these infants um, have come to their death. Right, like try to really narrow down what the possibilities were. Right, so that, that the fewer... Um, of actual undetermined deaths um, we have, um, the better, because the more that we understand how these infants die, that actually has um, preventive actions that we can then um, more readily um, uh, try to take up. Right. So, Michael, did we find that these deaths are still happening, though? Yeah. But to, to put, to put some, some perspective on this, every year there's approximately 44,000 babies born each year um, and an average of 23 sleep-related infant deaths. Um, as I noted earlier, uh, many of these deaths are preventable and they certainly um, occur disproportionately in vulnerable families. Right. So are there other risk factors that we have learned about? 
Well, uh, the, the risk factors, um, or I actually would refer to them as markers that, that we've known for a while, um, and uh, a number of those things um, would, would be around things such as tobacco use, uh, the sleep position of the infant, um, bed sharing, uh, an unsafe sleep surface, um, a, a soft surface, um, blankets, um, areas where a, a, uh, an infant could get wedged, um, substance use, um, experiencing uh, problems with housing, uh, mental health, domestic violence, um, a, a number of things like that. Right. Let's talk about our, our markers. Let's talk about sleep position then. I, I remember from when my kids were, um, you know, uh, babies when I brought them home from the hospital. The big thing was about don't let them sleep on their stomach. Like what? So what do we know now about sleep position? Yeah, so that, that message has been um, around for a while. Is, is you referred to as back to sleep, is you want to put your baby to sleep on his or her back um, in a crib or a bassinet in the same room as you is the safest way for your baby to sleep. Um, you want them on a firm mattress that's free of hazards, so that, ideally to reduce the risk of suffocation. Um, so you want a tight-fitting sheet with no bumper pads, pillows, heavy blankets, or toys in the sleep, sleep space. Um, the safest place for your baby to sleep is in a Health Canada-approved crib or bassinet. Um, it, it, good idea to have your um, baby sharing a room with you, but on a separate sleep surface. Certainly a smoke-free environment um, is, is really important, and, and avoiding smoking during pregnancy is also um, important. And avoid overheating. Babies like to be warm um, but not hot, um, so you want to keep the room temperature comfortable and and there's no need to swaddle them or put a hat on them indoors. Right. Those all sound pretty straightforward there, Michael, though, but are we still have trouble getting the message through? Um, I think that, that, um, that some of the universal messaging, of which we need to continue, um, has, has done really well. Um, but as I mentioned, a number of these deaths, most of them disproportionately happen in vulnerable families. And I think that um, with the panel... Uh, identified was that um, more than simply messaging is needed. And a couple of gaps that um, were identified in the panel um, was a lack of capacity to deliver universal public health services um, and an insufficient ability to provide enhanced services in situations uh, where we have identified vulnerabilities. And so tangibly, what what might that look like or what might that um, mean is Doing things like um, ensuring low barrier and culturally safe public health services um, are available to all postpartum uh, mothers and that there's a a proper assessment and everyone's offered a home visit um, and provided with the support and follow-up is indicated by that assessment. Right. I'm assuming that with the home visit, I mean, that's critical, right? So somebody who can go in and say, all right, like maybe there's too many toys, too many blankets, like create some more space here. Um, certainly, but there, there's, and, and uh, but beyond that is actually then identifying with, with these more vulnerable infants and families is do they have some other needs that are actually going to have to be worked through to help them actually ensure that, that they can um, meet those infants' needs in a, in a safe way. Right. What are the numbers like on this, Michael? Like, are, are we still losing babies to this every year? Yeah, as you mentioned in your opening, um, you know, we, we haven't seen um, a, a change in the rate or the number um, since we did this um, six years ago. Right. So um, there, there certainly is, is um, continued uh, work to be done, given that these are preventable deaths, and, and given... Um, 
that we we know again disproportionately where these these um, deaths are occurring. So right. it's really important. I think the challenge is um, identifying the needs of these carers and infants, engaging them, and providing with the support that they need. That's so fascinating because I know there was a lot of progress made against this, uh, you know, in the 90s and into the early 2000s. Have we stopped making progress then in bringing these numbers down? Well, I, I, I think, you know, given that we've got 44,000 babies born each year and, and there's been a lot of work and continues to be a lot of work done in the universal messaging, and I think that that's really important to keep that up. I think that that's been successful um, to a great degree, but we still certainly have some challenges and some work to do um, in, in identifying, engaging, and better supporting vulnerable families. All right, Michael, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you so much for your interest. That's Michael Elson, Chair for the death, Child Death Review Unit for the BC Coroner Service. In essence, it is a review unit that takes the deaths of babies and tries to figure out what happened, what are they, what went wrong. A violent sexual offender is living in the city of Vancouver. We want people to be aware of who he is, what he looks like, and what his criminal past was. That is Vancouver Police issuing a warning to the public today because a man convicted of kidnapping and sexually assaulting a young girl 15 years ago has now been released to a halfway house. His name is Brian Abrosimo. He's 57 years old. Now, we're going to learn more about this story, what makes it so significant uh, with the help of Janet Brown, now our Global News senior reporter who is with us. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simi. So this story goes way back, but give us a refresher course on what happened here. It goes back 15 years to the year 2004. And when I saw Mr. Abrosimo's name in the news release sent out by Vancouver Police this morning, Simi, it certainly rang a bell for me because I was working that day that this all unfolded. And it was a sunny August afternoon in Aldergrove when we, uh, our newsroom learned that two girls out riding their bikes very innocently, just like many children do, uh, were hit by a van. Both girls ended up in the ditch, but one of them was kidnapped, thrown into the back of a van. Nobody knew what was going on. Her friend uh, was found in the ditch, as I say. She had cuts, bruises, right. a broken wrist, etc. And uh, there was a huge manhunt underway for this van, and it was a white van, and it went on for some time. And I remember uh, there were various locations around the Lower Mainland that uh, police and RCMP were focusing in on. One was a home on 176th Street across from the Cloverdale Arena. There was a huge uh, police presence there. And then came word that a van, a white van, had been located on 64th Avenue. And back then in the year 2004, that was all bush area and shrubs. Mm -hmm. Nothing was developed there like it is nowadays, all townhomes, etc., uh, but word came that a white van had been located uh, across the street from the Bose uh, farm on 64th. Anybody living in the, that area knows exactly where I'm talking about before you go down the hill. And sure enough, it was the van that the RCMP in Surrey were looking for. And the girl had been located and she was alive. And the relief that came from that, knowing that she was okay, 
was amazing. And the little girl had been taken, as I say, when she was hit on her bike, thrown into the van. She was, uh, her eyes uh, were taped, her mouth was taped shut, and she was sexually mm. assaulted. And somehow, somehow, an 11-year-old girl was able to escape from that van and run to a home nearby. And as I say, the van was found in, in brush and bush area. So she had a ways to go to run to a house for help. And thankfully, somebody was home and thankfully, somebody opened that door. Well, since then, uh, 57-year-old Brian Abrosimo, as you say, uh, was charged and he was sentenced, convicted, and he uh, has spent most of his time in prison and then released to a halfway house, as we heard from Vancouver police. He's in Vancouver now, but despite serving his time, despite being in a halfway house, and despite having an ankle bracelet so that he can be tracked every movement of every day, every minute of every hour, Vancouver police are still issuing a warning saying he still poses a significant risk to young women and adult women. And here is more of what Vancouver Police Sergeant Aaron Road has to say. He's not to be in or near or around places where children under the age of 18 are likely to congregate, such as elementary and secondary schools, parks, swimming pools, and recreational centers, unless accompanied by an adult previously approved by his parole supervisor. He also has a geographic restriction where he's not allowed to be in Abbotsford, Langley, or on Vancouver Island. Janet, I can't recall the time that Vancouver police have given out this much of an alert. Like, they've done warnings before, but not as as big as this one. You're right about that, Simi. Absolutely. I mean, this th- people need to pay attention when Vancouver police issue these types of warnings. Absolutely. And Mr. Abrosimo was also convicted, Simi, of handcuffing, gagging, and sexually assaulting a sex trade worker just a month before the kidnapping of the little girl in Langley. And we had also learned uh, that at a community residential facility in the Okanagan, he was granted a one-chance limited release but after 11 months, he started acting out. Uh, the parole board said he uh, seemed to change his behavior, his attitude changed, and that he had, quote, a disregard for the well-being of female staff who were working with him. And based on that, a decision was made that he could only go on excursions with male staff. So a real history with this person, as I say, people need to pay attention when Vancouver police issue these sorts of alerts. Hopefully he will abide by his conditions and that there won't be a problem. Hopefully he will change his his uh, life around and, and make a better path for himself. He's only 57 years of age, you know. Um, yeah. There's hope for everybody, Simi. But when, as, like you say, when police issue a warning, people need to pay attention, yeah. take heed, and be on the lookout. Janet, does you think this also indicates, though, that Vancouver police, and I'm sure other police departments, I'm sure they've let other departments know as well, that they are keeping a very close eye on this particular person? Absolutely, they are. And uh, parole board, others as well, community workers, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, nobody's perfect. We're all human. Mistakes can be made. There's always lots of uh, cases that 
that the, the police and, and caseworkers have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yes, they absolutely are right. keeping a close eye on things. But, you know, sometimes people and issues fall through the cracks. But he is wearing a bracelet. So that's a good thing. And uh, hopefully officials stay on top of him considering uh, this warning, Simi. All right, Janet, thank you so much for that. Thank you, Simi. As Global News senior reporter Janet Brown, remembering the original story in this case that has led us uh, to this unusual warning from the Vancouver Police Department today, alerting the public uh, because of 57-year-old Brian Abrosimo, who they say has uh, been released to a halfway house. He has a long list of conditions that are attached to that release to the halfway house. And just some of them are not to consume or purchase alcohol, not to consume, purchase, or possess drugs other than prescribed medication, not to associate with any person known to be involved in criminal activity. Uh, He has to immediately report all uh, sexual and non-sexual relationships and friendships with females to a parole supervisor. So any acquaintance that is a woman has to be reported to a parole supervisor. He's not allowed to be in the presence of any female children. He's not allowed to be in, near, or around places where children under the age of 18 are likely to congregate. So you can get an idea here, uh, right, of what's going on and how serious uh, the police are taking this.